0: Welcome back to Great Move North. More light and longer days opens opportunities to explore stunning surroundings for those who've decided to swap a cityscape for something seriously different. If you've ever wondered if a move is for you, or even if you're just about to do it, then this might be the place for you. We meet the people who've made that move and jumped. Often the hidden stories of wartime are the most touching, the poignant moments lost amid the carnage. Author and genealogist Margaret Brenchley has built a reputation as an expert on the backstories of one of those communities impacted by the absence of those who had gone to fight. It mattered not if you were secretly saving the lives of Jewish children escaping the Holocaust, you'd still be hauled before the courts for failing to immobilize your car. Who knew? Margaret does. And she's sharing it with the world from the place she's excited to return to after so long away. We were talking about genealogy, Margaret. Yeah. And you were starting to tell me how it all began. So why not tell me?
1: It began um, probably 40 years ago. Wow. Well, nearly 40 years ago. um, My father was adopted and I'd always wanted to find out where his twin brother, who wasn't adopted with him, had got to. And Dad didn't know. He didn't know anything about it. And that's what started me on family history, because in order to find out uh, what had happened to him, I had to do a lot of family history. And I did find them. I found Dad's half-sister in South Africa. And 1988, I should say, I found his twin brother's uh, daughter in Northamptonshire. And in 1997 or 8, I can't remember exactly when it was, I managed to find Dad's half-sister in South Africa and three South African cousins. Good grief. Yeah.
0: And w- so were they all reunited? What happened? Was, my dad, when I met, Was your dad still around?
1: My dad was, managed to go down. His last journey out in 1980, 1985, it would be the autumn of 85, was to see his niece, his twin brother's daughter, that was his last journey out down into Rushton. But his f- brother had died several years earlier, sadly.
0: And what was the backstory to the South African connection? How far back did you, uh,
1: did well, you go? Well, grandmother, my grandmother, that is Dad's mother, had uh, married and gone out to South Africa in 1927. Right. And had, she had um, quite an interesting life out there. And uh, her daughter, Cherry... Um I had the three children, who, yeah, three cousins who, you know, come up here to see me occasionally now, mm. which is good. So that's what started me off.
0: And that's been a 40-year running theme. Yes,
1: yeah, so I'm still finding things out about people that I didn't know. Yeah.
0: Mm. But the research that you did to discover that about your father and his twin brother would have been, in the 80s, paper-based? Yes, None of the tools it was. I to-
1: used to go up to London to the Society of genealogists I used to go to the Mormon place in Kensington near the museum and so on and so forth
0: but now 40 years on a lot of that information is available at the click of the mouse we're in kind of nearly post-pandemic 2022 and post census 2021 Um, and am I right in thinking that a lot of the census information from 100 years ago is now more or less instantly available
1: it is if it, the 1921 census is available now. You have to pay for it, even though you have a, I have a subscription, I still have to pay for it, mm. because they've had four years and spent millions of pounds getting it all together, so that we could look at it online, and so they've got to recoup that before they take away the subscription to it.
0: So it's it's a series of constant revelations, yes, this yeah. journey into the past. Yes,
1: it's with my father's brother, for example. He's on the 1911 census and that's quite interesting because he's with his mother who in Warwickshire and she's teaching and she is obviously working for council and being an unmarried mother is uh, you know having to keep things fairly secret and she's added a surname, Pitman Lawson now they were born at Tosside in the household containing Lawson's so I suspect right. that is why she put Lawson on the end of his name. So I've been waiting for the 1921 census to see what happened to him, because his daughter told me one or two things. Because he he was adopted somewhere along the line, but we never quite found out what had happened. And uh, I found him in forward barracks at Preston as a boy soldier, age sixteen. Good grief! Yeah.
0: And you found him. That, that this was
1: in the, 1921. The, the 21 census. census. Yeah. Right. Last last
0: month or so. Yeah. So. 40 years ago, you started all of this. Yeah. That was the big... Um, it was the driving force. Yeah, yeah. and you've also mentioned your mum was a teacher. My grandmother was a teacher. Your grandmother was a yeah. teacher. And is that the, the vocation? Has that passed through the genes? Well,
1: I possibly has, but at the time I became a teacher, I only knew of my grandfather on the other side of the family's sister, who was a teacher. Since I've discovered my Pittman family, my father's parents were both teachers, even the fa- my putative grandfather, <laughs> and... Grandmother's uh, parents were both teachers, great-grandparents, and a great-grandmother taught needlework in the Baden-Powell family. So I think there probably was some gene
0: (laughs) there, at work there somehow. Tell me about your teaching career.
1: Right. I trained as a mature student in my 30s at Bournemouth College in Berkshire, and uh, I did three-year teacher training, and then my husband was posted to Germany just as I finished, so I did my... Probationary year at a school in a service children's school in Germany, and we had six years there. I worked for a superb head teacher there, and I came back to Bracknell uh, in Berkshire. And I, after it, it was very difficult the first year because you couldn't get jobs anywhere, but I then got a job in a brand new school. It was being opened in Lower Early near Reading, and again uh, the head was an absolute gem to work for. So I was very lucky, and then I ended up being. Uh, few years i got a job well the head left she went on promotion and i got it i didn't like the new head so i managed to get a job as an advisory teacher for mass right. in berkshire and uh, whilst i'd done I, I was only supposed to be there for a year but i did 18 months and then i got a headship in in hampshire which i stayed in until i retired
0: you mentioned your husband being posted to germany yeah. that was because of his met office career yeah, is that was, correct yeah that's correct yeah. tell me about him
1: <laughs> um he, well, he was, a, he was a forecaster for a start in the Met Office. Um, he, I met him at London Airport because I went, I was in the Met Office as well to begin with in, when I left school. And I went to Heathrow and he was working there. That's where we met. And we married. And we'd not been married very long before we went to Cyprus. And the three kids were born there. And came back and we were in Norfolk in Coltershaw. And after two years there, we went to Bahrain for two and a half years. Came back from there to Bracknell and we had about four I think three or four years in Bracknell then we went to Germany for six years and then came back to Bracknell and I stayed there more or less till I came up here yeah
0: what was the political situation like in Germany when you were there
1: fine it was absolutely fine yeah Mm. yeah it was a nice place to live yeah
0: Mm. what about London London Airport it's interesting you talk about London Airport
1: yes because that's what it was called when I went there wasn't Wasn't Heathrow? It was London Airport. Seven Seven Two London LAP. It was known as in the Met world. Yeah, so London Airport. Yeah, it was a great time, place to work. Actually, the Met office was an extremely friendly place to work in those days.
0: Yeah, I happen to know that you uh, took a little bit of a pilgrimage back there just a few months ago. When you went back down for a reunion? Yeah, they
1: went, went to Bracknell for a reunion. They, ha- they have uh, retirees, I think it is. They're all old, old, oldies there. And they have this uh, lunch once a year. They've missed two years because of the pandemic, but they've had. Mm. And uh, you meet up with people you haven't seen for years and years. And my friend Beth and I decided we'd go together. She met up with someone she hadn't seen since she worked at Harrow pre 1960. Good grief. <laughs> she was sold to bits. Yeah.
0: Are there any similarities at all? With the world of forecasting, then and now.
1: Yeah, well, you do the forecasts in the same way. You just have a computer to help you now. Mm. And whereas I used to plot charts, and we plot, or lots of us plotting charts at Heathrow, or, um, you now have a computer that plots them. So the forecaster just has to go with what's on the screen. Yeah, it's all on the screen. It comes up on a screen, and um, it's all done from you know digitally, so to speak.
0: And in terms of the training for that. Then
1: they would have the same training as my husband did because you've got to know all about forecasting. Yeah. You can't just go and look at the computer. It's it's you have to have the physics and maths to go with it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah.
1: It's quite complicated, yeah.
0: So the move then after teaching you you were a teacher until you retired. Yeah,
1: and then when I retired, I just had, a, I had to have a major op just as I retired. Mm. So that sort of kept me quiet, if you like, for a few years. Mm. And I, uh, but during that time, I did Ofsted inspections. I trained as an Ofsted inspector uh, for a short while. And then I did something that was called, um, what's it called? The, uh, uh, an advisor to head teachers and governing bodies on professional development. So I used to go around schools advising heads and governors. On their targets for the year, and then go back and check them out the next year, and things like that.
0: Yes. Yeah, so and when was... Margaret came, it was a scary moment for those. Well,
1: guys. for some maybe, but <laughs> the, th- the thing that really struck me was that uh, things I'd done years ago in my headship they hadn't even thought of doing. And I thought, "Oh, that's a good idea." <laughs> so, yeah.
0: So twelve years ago, yeah, you were probably surrounded by boxes and thinking about your great move north. Yeah. Back to this part of the world, and. I know that the Hodder Valley and Ribblesdale and where we are, where we're sitting today is in your heart, but what was it like in those final days preparing for the move?
1: Well, funny enough, it was quite organized. <laughs> mm. I'd, I'd got a plan, I'd organized how to move, because I moved enough in my life to know how to move, let's put it that way. And uh, I was quite looking forward to it. I was quite excited about it. And Bracknell's a strange place. It, I would say it doesn't have a soul. And so I wasn't too too worried about leaving. It was... Um, I, was just, I was just excited at coming back, I think. Because I'd been coming back to Sladeburn for three, three years uh, for the odd, well, two weeks every few months. And I got to the stage where I never wanted to go back to Bracknell at one point. And so, I, you know, I knew I was doing the right thing.
0: So Sladeburn, the Hodder Valley, has always been home.
1: Well, I used to say I was going home, and, and it wasn't back to home in Brighton. it would be back to Yorkshire, you know, things, yeah. you know, things like that,
0: yeah. That was always the driver. Was that always the plan?
1: Uh, it, would, it was my plan, but it wasn't my husband's. It rained too much, being a meteorologist, I couldn't argue with it. Where was he from? Kent. Right. Yeah. The coast, higher than Kent, yeah.
0: So 12 years here, and the author of four books, yeah. and a constant theme... I would say reading those books is you're colouring in the communities through the people and their stories. Yeah, yes. It's that drawing together um, the genealogy that we've talked mm. about and some of the extraordinary uh, communities nearby.
1: Yeah, well, when I wrote the one on the First World War, that was because I had this feeling that we were reading the names on the cenotaph on Remembrance Sunday. And they were just names and nobody... When I was a child, I went to the cenotaph in Slabon on Remembrance Sunday. I had no idea that William Horton was the village policeman. Nobody ever told me. And I thought, there's a whole generation of people who don't know who these people are. They need to know. We need to remember them properly. Tell well, that me about was William Horton. He was a village policeman. He, he was from Walkham originally. He came a village policeman for about two years in and I think before he enlisted. He had a wife and two children. And he went to... France and with some other policemen, Yorkshire policemen, he was killed having come back from leave and a sniper got him, basically yeah, it very sad
0: There's so many of those stories that you've captured from this side of the trenches how that impacted the communities and how it affected these villages
1: Yeah and some interesting stories, particularly with my mother's cousins, my mother lost two cousins from Tosside and one of them, uh, Sam, had a very strange story to tell, and that um, it turned out that his wife, they had, his wife had a child when he was went in, in France, and everyone thought it was his child, but it wasn't. And he was killed just before uh, the armistice, and uh, I've often wondered, did he know it wasn't his child? But apparently um, the family hounded this young girl out of the district. She she ended up in Australia, apparently, with a, her with a husband. But she, if I tell you, she married within three months of him being killed. You know. So it, it upset the, the good people of Tosside, I think. Yeah.
0: And tell me about, you mentioned the cenotaphs and the war memorials. Every village has these, um, you know, very moving um, memorials to... Those we lost in the first yeah. and second world war, and I remember you've you've also identified whether there are one or two villages where there's double counting where the the name crops up.
1: Yeah, yeah, is one. There are several people. There's a, one guy called Carr, John Carr, and John Carr was from a family in Dale Head, a family of twelve children. And he, he and his brother were killed within a week of each other, the youngest and the eldest. I don't think it was quite like that, or one of the eldest Killed within a week of each other. But the eldest brother is on the Dunsett Bridge Memorial because he was working there be- when he enlisted. Right. But he's also on the Dale Head one because they were very much a Dale Head family. Right. Yeah. And they are now, they've put the Dale Head and the Dunsett ones, well, the Dunsert ones always been on the Slave and there's four, now four plaques on there now.
0: And have you found more of the... Is is that just a completely isolated incident? No,
1: the only one I've found that wasn't on the memorial was somebody from Dale Head, and uh, Harry Peel is name. And I was looking up a will online uh, for somebody called Lawrence Peel, who is one of the uh, families from Noelmere Manor, Judge Peel's brother, and... As I was looking this up on the same page, there was this Harry Peel, and it gave his parents' address. And his parents had retired to sleep. And by the time his will was in 1918, and I thought, well, that's odd. He's not on my list, you <laughs> know. And so I started researching and found that um, he he's on he's on the Dale Head list in the church. But because the Dale Head list is just lists everybody who served, including those who died. It doesn't say who died and who came back. Right. And there was another Harry Peel, his nephew, around at the time. And I suspect they got confused with the nephew, Harry Peel, and thought he'd come back. I think that's what happened.
0: It's a real detective (laughs) story, isn't it? I mean, joining these dots, cross-reffing wills and parish records and war memorials. The degree of diligence to get to a point where you've got some accuracy, it's the final piece in yeah, the jigsaw, yeah, isn't it? Yeah,
1: They say you have have three pieces of evidence to make it stick.
0: <laughs> right. So. And what's been the most satisfying final piece to drop in that jigsaw where, where something's been niggling away for a long time, either for a family or for a project that you've been doing, where you've suddenly realised, I've got it, I've got that final little piece. Well I think the
1: biggest thing for me was finding the family basically, that had to be it Yeah, Um, I've had lots of little moments, Hmm. there's the story of the the ostrich egg a family asked me to find out whether it was their great grandfather who had brought this ostrich egg that they have in their house back from somewhere because they weren't sure where it had come from, but they thought it was him so they asked me to do the family history so I traced his family history back and he was missing on one census, and I think it's 1891 census, but he was on every other census. He'd lived in Clitheroe, he worked for a very rich mill owner in Clitheroe, obviously quite close because he had the house next door to him as a gardener. Come, He did all the jobs around the house, I think. Anyway, I gave them their family tree, having done it, and they made a donation to the archive. And then quite by chance, I was looking through um, the Lancashire archives list on the computer one night, and I happened to see this name um, come up, and I had a look. And there was an arti- a document in the archive at Preston uh, with uh, not only his name, but the name that I'd, of an employer I'd seen in earlier censuses. Right. I thought there's a link there. So when I went to Preston, I got the document out, and lo and behold, it's his employer, This um, I can't remember his name now, but he was, he'd gone, the employer had gone out to South Africa, taken him with him, and he'd died out there, the employer. Uh, but this guy had signed his will. All right. And so I was able to send a message to the family and say, I now know where your ostrich came from. Uh, and they went, I made. I didn't go with them. I thought, no, they go on their own. And I told them how to get into the archive, what to look for, all the references. And they went and found it in the end. So it was good, yeah.
0: That's amazing. So
1: that was great to have that. Because I thought I'd finished and failed at one point, And then yeah. suddenly, by chance, you find something
0: because what what really what really strikes me in in the books that you've written is the the quiet courage and fortitude of the the farming communities and the villagers left behind while the guys are out yeah, there doing yeah. doing their stuff. Um, there's some amazing stories. Uh, one that um, springs to mind is the I think it was a doctor, a village doctor, who had taken in um, Jewish children uh, or brought up refugees. Yes, that's right. Um,
1: He wasn't actually a doctor of medicine. He was a doctor, PhD type doctor. Tell me about him. Dr. Fitch, I don't know an awful lot about Dr. Fitch, but he was, I think he was a Quaker at heart, but um, his speciality was children who are disturbed, basically. And so he set up this school at Dunner Hall in Slaben, which is a little hall sort of, you know, about a mile out of Slaben, on the way to Newton, but not on the main road. And um, so children would come and stay there. And it was run as a school, but I think it was quite a successful school. But he, he, his wife mixed in the village, but I don't think he did too well. Because when the war came along, and just before the war, he, all these Germans and Czechs and people were turning up in the village. And there was a, I remember my mother telling me that they thought he was very pro-German, you see. And that was the feeling. But nobody ever told me that these people were being rescued from the Nazis at all. You know, there's another thing, it's like looking at the memorial and not knowing who people were, that you grow up in a place and you just take it as a surface thing, don't you? The knowledge mm-hmm. of a, Dr. Fitch was at Dunner, children went there sort of thing.
0: And what was he doing then? He was teaching. It but was no, a, I mean, with these children, how what he was the conduit to, to, to bring the, them... He'd
1: actually set up a gr- the group of, uh, I don't know who the others were, but a group of local people in the Clitheroe area, presumably people who were Quakers and all of that, affinity uh, set up a a rescue organization they decided they were and i think he was the person who gave them work
0: it's extraordinary isn't it yeah and very little recognition other than he he got into trouble with the police didn't he
1: yes so he didn't immobilize his car correctly
0: (laughs) what did that mean
1: (laughs) well all it was a uh, a law came out that all i think it was all farmers and businesses and he must have classed as a business had to immobilize their car if they left it unattended and apparently some of them just crossed two wires. Don't ask me which wires. but uh, And the judge said uh, they were guilty of not uh, immobilising their vehicles and crossing two wires would not be an accepted practice or words to that effect.
0: <laughs> Meanwhile, he's saving the lives of yeah, countless yeah, yeah, yeah. refugees.
1: Well, I don't know how many, but some anyway. That's the important thing, yeah, yeah. But it's a story that nobody in the village seems to know much about. That's what always strikes me as odd, you know, people... It was, you know, they were over there and the rest of the village was there. And also, of course, these uh, the local, the Germans, according to one person who knew that uh, it was at the school at the time, who we happened to know, he said that the Germans and Czechs, they didn't go out because they, they were afraid that they'd be, you know, taken for Germans who were spying or something like that. And so they, they stayed very much within the grounds of the
0: hall. Because slave burn is the constant theme and I know you've done so much to shape the archive which is an extraordinary building in its own right that that's a a triumph there's an archivist there now but the the building itself is um is testament to the work that a lot of people have done but you in particular well Um, they're
1: just one of the team so to speak yeah yeah but um it's it was started by Jenny Bradley now Jenny is the person who had the contacts with Dunner Hall because she worked there uh, briefly as a, a nurse when, and then she went to do her national service so to speak as a nurse but her father ran the farm at Dunner Hall as well so they, I did learn a lot about Dunner Hall from Jenny
0: So that heart and soul of the community in Sladeburn you talked about Bracknell earlier on it's not really comparing apples with apples but very very different
1: Completely different yeah Yeah. It was a new town, and we went there when it was relatively small, but it grew grew like topsy. It is still growing. I hardly recognised it when I went back in December. Some parts of it have changed out of all recognition. I could go shopping there, and I'd never see a soul that I knew. Whereas you can go into Settle, and you meet half a dozen people and stuff and chat, and that's the difference. Is that a good thing? Well, I enjoy it anyway. (laughs) depends whether you're in a hurry or not.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but you are also part of the community in all sorts of other ways we've talked about U3A I know in the past and you engage online and um, obviously everybody's online at the moment because of the pandemic but um, playing that part in a vibrant community is that again different to what it was like in the south
1: yes I mean there were social things on in the south but it was very much you had to make a real effort there um fortunately for us, the Met Office was our social scene. It, um, it was a very social organization. We had lots of friends and particularly people we met when we lived overseas. they were the ones we kept our friendships up with. yeah.
0: And when you're dealing with people who are trying to build those jigsaws we touched on earlier on, um, the backstory what's what's the key tip? What is it that you advise them? most of all to to invest in, to do? Is it just joining a membership, one of these online things or is it making sure you've got diligent research that's backed up by documents?
1: Um, If it's people in the family history group I would tell them uh, to always uh, start with what they know write down everything they know, talk to individuals, so many people forget that they've got people around who do know things, you've got to take some things with a pinch of salt, you Mm. know um but um it's just to start in one place and do one thing at a time
0: yeah and what's what's the key takeaway from that you know a hundred year look back now to the people of the 2020s um to that 1920s, one thinks of flappers and pre-great you know, strikes and you know, <laughs> yeah, post-war. Yeah. And one I, thing
1: that comes, stands out when you go online and you look at all the things you don't have to pay for is the fact that the number of widows is extraordinary. They've, there's there a sense, you know, this uh, account of proportion of widows is enormous. The proportion out of work is enormous. And uh, that's the thing that really s- strikes you. And that they, I think, I think more than a million men were in the mines and things like that.
0: So, looking forward, what do you think will be the big difference if we were to have this conversation and people doing what you do, looking at how life was post-pandemic Britain in 2022? What will be the difference? What will be the marked change that this time will have seen? Is it that we're seeing a social shift? that rebalancing from the service sector and the London focus post-industrial, or is it something different?
1: Well, obviously, that when it came to jobs, I think you'd see the technical side of things, wouldn't you? The IT would stand out a mile compared to anything that's gone before. I think one of the things that we always, this is one thing we always say in family history, it's quite easy now to research your family because everybody got married, there weren't many divorces, <laughs> yeah. and so on and so forth, and people didn't change their names too often. Whereas now you, you've got families where there are three or four different fathers for you know in one family and things like that. And in hundred years' time, I think that's going to be very difficult to catch up with if you're mm-hmm. just researching and wanted to go systematically back through the families.
0: It must be, yeah, very tricky to. To follow those different...
1: Yeah, well, this is what everybody in family history is saying. You know, thank goodness we're doing it now and not in 100 years' time. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah, I'd never thought of that. So, big proportion of widows, but very small proportion of of divorcees.
1: Yeah, it was not... Frowned upon. Well, it was so expensive anyway. Because they had to go through Parliament, I think, in those days. So that was... I don't know when that changed, but um, yeah, it was expensive.
0: What are the other standout things that emerge from your research into those communities in terms of how people lived while, while their husbands were and wives were away?
1: Well, I think it was the children. Those with children had a very hard time of it because um, apparently in Sladeburn in particular, the old squire who died in 39, used to uh, go round and tell the children what he thought of them. And their parents got to know about it straight away if he saw any of them misbehaving. Of course, they were his tenants. <laughs> and uh, Mrs Kenyon, in her letters to her son, says that the evacuees are causing mayhem in the village. amongst And she was saying, pity the old squire isn't here to sort them out, or words to say. That.
0: <laughs> yeah. And what about their footwear? That was something... That...
1: Yeah, that was, that was quite interesting because... Um, If you live on a farm, sandals and shoes are not much use in wet weather, as you know, in the farmyard. And so a lot of these children were on farms. um, And so the families bought them clothes. That's another thing. A lot of them came with very poor clothing. So there was a a fundraising in the village to buy them clothes as well. And um, they also bought them clogs because that was a sensible thing. And everybody normally wore clogs, so the the has got clogs, and uh, I think it was quite a novelty. But when the mayor of Brighton came to visit Sladeburn, uh, in, he came to visit and see the children from the school in Brighton that was there, and uh, he remarked that um, our, our children seemed to have taken to clogs, you know. <laughs> so, um, it obviously was quite a standout thing to wear clogs.
0: So looking back then, Margaret, um, you made this great move. It was... 10 years, 12 years ago now. Um, what's been the the highlight for you? Uh, is it seeing your work published in these books? Is it spreading the message through the family history groups or is it seeing that transformation in the, the archive?
1: Well, it's all of those, but the thing is to be back where I belong. <laughs> I think it's the best way of putting it. You know, I really felt, I, my, my husband always used to say, you, you, you'll have to go back to and one day. He used to say that to me because um, he always had that, Feeling. It was a very special place when you're young in a village. I think villages are far more um, homely than towns, probably, that's why. Although, when I was a teenager, I couldn't wait to get away because everybody knew what you were doing. You couldn't have anything secret from anybody. <laughs> but, you know, coming back, it's a different thing altogether. And do you think
0: there is any sense of that happening now that people are coming back into the villages from other parts of the world? We've seen this demographic pattern change where yeah. villages have lost their schools and aging populations and the young people going away to university if i look at
1: and there are a lot of new people coming into the village but there are people who come back um, not not many but though I, I know three or four people who came back about the time i did the time i did and we all came back because we love the place and mm. that's it you know
0: is the pandemic likely to change that as well the work the whole notion of post-commuting, working-from-home society. I don't think
1: it's changed. I don't think it will in Sladeburn in particular. Um, I think it's probably brought them closer together in some ways. For instance, the village shop uh, had new people take it over just before lockdown. And they started, um, along with the Heart to Bounty, which couldn't open because, you know, they couldn't have people in t- into the pub, um, they set up a, a sandwich system so people could go in and buy food and order food in the shop. And they took food out to people and they really made a, a, their impact on the village. So they really, you know, became part of the, the, the life and the, they'll, they'll be respected forever now for doing that, I think.
0: Now, I've heard you mentioned it. it's a famous famous pub because that name is unique and i've heard various versions of how it got the name you'll know the definitive
1: well i wouldn't say it was definitive i can tell you the one that's recognized let's put it that way i don't know whether there is a definitive
0: hark to bounty yeah
1: well let's go back to the late 1700s and there was a rector called the reverend henry wigglesworth right the wigglesworths had been in slope and, and owned town the big hall and things like that so he was the rector uh he, had a very good curate who did most of the work for him, I think. But he used to hunt with hounds, right? Um, and it's the story goes that he was he liked his beer, I think, and he was in the bound, in the pub, and suddenly a hound started making a lot of noise, and it was his hound shouting, barking for him or something, and he kept saying, "Oh, hark to bounty!" That's the word, That's what people said. Oh, right. <laughs> That's the story. It's a simple story, but whether there's any truth in it, I don't know.
0: Well, it's stuck. I like the story. I like all the other stories, Margaret. (laughs) Margaret Brangley, thank you so much for taking us on this amazing journey over the decades. Thank you. Okay,
1: thank you.